This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for January 28th, 2019. We're hearing a lot about Russian interference recently, but we're not hearing a lot from Russia. In this show, I talk to a Moscow-based international affairs specialist to get the view from the other side. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Richard Anderson brutally struck down in a road rage incident back in February of 1997. Come join Lee Purchase and yours truly, Slim Turkey, (laughs) on an investigative journey to try to uncover the perpetrator of this senseless crime. Lee and I will discuss different aspects of this case from the information available or lack thereof. Help us to bring the assailant to justice and bring the Addison family some closure and peace of mind. Listen to Slim Turkey, The Unsolved Homicide, Richard Addison, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Talk to you later. A little more than a year ago, on the 27th of December 2017, a woman climbed on top of a utility cabinet, one of those boxes you see in the street for telecom equipment. She took off the headscarf she was wearing, she tied it to the end of a stick, and she waved it like a flag. That might not seem noteworthy, just a little strange, except for the fact that the woman who did it was Vida Mohaved and the utility cabinet she stood on was on Enkaleb Street, which means Revolution Street in Tehran, the capital of Iran. Since the Islamic Revolution in 1979, wearing a hijab, a headscarf covering the hair and neck, is required by law for all women in Iran. Vida was arrested almost immediately and is currently on bail awaiting trial. Within a couple of days, several women posted images on social media of themselves doing the same thing. One of them, Narges Hosseini, was arrested and charged with openly committing a sinful act, which carries a penalty of 10 years in prison and up to 74 lashes. She's also on bail pending trial. Since then, many other girls and women have followed Vida's example, despite dozens of them being arrested and some beaten by police. Reports indicate that Iran's hardline Islamic government is unsure whether to crack down hard on these protests or to turn a blind eye. They feel that either strategy could lead to them spreading. Some of their attempts to prevent the protests have been pathetic, such as fixing obstacles on top of utility boxes. Iran is different to Saudi Arabia, where women only recently were given the right to get a driving license and still can only go to university or even go shopping with the permission of a male guardian. 
the place of women in Iranian society is complex. There are female members of the Iranian parliament, some of whom have expressed something akin to grudging support for the girls of Revolution Street, as the protesters have become known. Before that revolution, women had comparatively much more freedom. In 1979, thousands of women protested in the streets at the introduction of this very law making the hijab compulsory. The courage of the women in these recent protests cannot be overstated. They protest, often alone, often in a street full of hostile men. They're well aware that rape and torture, including sexual torture, are common in Iranian prisons, particularly for prisoners protesting against the regime. And, should they try to escape and claim asylum, every single one of them is banned from entering the United States under Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Maxim Suchov. He is a PhD political analyst. He's also the Russia editor of Al Monitor, and he's a fellow at the Italian Institute for International Political Studies. So you're very well up on Russian international policy. We've seen recently that Donald Trump has announced that the US is withdrawing troops from Syria. They may be doing that more slowly than had originally been intended. But rather than look at the US policies and their policy goals in Syria, what I want to do with you is just understand a little bit about Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin's policy goals in Syria. Why is Russia, why are there Russian troops in Syria, do you think? Well, thanks very much for having me in the first place. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. You know, the issue of Syria has been in the prime focus of the Russian foreign policy over the last three to four years since the very uh, launch of the campaign in Syria in, in the fall of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the beginning, you know, the strategy that Russia had, or, the, you know, it's always a debate whether Russia has a strategy or it's a opportunistic tactics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at least the vision that Russia had in the first place was primarily three uh, dimensional. One was to prop up the uh, Assad regime that were, he was on the last, on his last legs when uh, Russians intervened. Uh, second was this idea to fight ISIS and other, you know, opposition groups that Russian government deemed as terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and third was definitely to break through the what was shaping up by then as the Russian isolation uh, from the West follow up of the takeover of Crimea and, you know, this war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So basically, the, the quote unquote strategy Russia had at the time was uh, pri- very much threats based, right? There was a threat of the fall of ISIS, a threat of terrorism and the threat of Western isolation. Let, let me let me pause you on that. Is ISIS terrorism really a problem for Russia? I know that there are some Muslim separatists in the South Caucasus, but as a percentage of the whole of Russia, that's minuscule. Do they really care? Well, I think they do. And I think here it's not so so much the, you know, ISIS as a caliphate, uh, but the, the very uh, toxic influence it has via social media in uh, radicalizing Russian domestic Sunnism. Uh, you see the records of terrorism act, acts in Russia now, and they're pretty much people in the nineties, twenties, which gives you a perception that you know these are the people who already uh, you know grew up while Russia was still in Syria. So there's a big problem in this domestic radicalization. 
Mm-hmm. And ISIS or other terrorist groups are a problem in this very respect. There was a while towards the start of the Syria war when it looked like the UK and the US would intervene in Syria. That then didn't really happen in significant numbers, in the, in, on, certainly not on the scale of the Iraq war. Was there a case that Putin wanted to make sure that Syria didn't get an American-installed government that would make it another client state? And that the main motivation? It definitely was one of the main uh, driving forces for the Russian presence there, especially given that Syria was you know, fourth or fifth state that fell under this kind of surge of the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. The watershed moment for Russia, of course, came in Libya in 2011, uh, they, when the Russians thought that, you know, they cannot afford for Assad to happen, what, what happened to Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of sent this split within the Russian uh, government itself when Putin was heavily critical of Medvedev for, you know, abstaining Russia on that UN Security Council vote. And then that, you know, by the time that Russia intervened, Russian-owned domestic you know, picture and then landscape changed a lot when Putin was back in power already, you know, when uh, there was some protests in Moscow. So this kind of feeling of the besieged fortress has been greatly reiterated back then. That today, Russian um, kind of strategy, quote unquote strategy, is reverting from the threats based to opportunities based that, you know, Russia enjoys this image it, it, it created for itself as a powerful, new power, powerful player in the region. Okay. One thing that I've heard said of Putin is that he He's good at tactics, but bad at strategy. Is it possible that he, as you put it, just saw an opportunity and went for it and doesn't really, other than perhaps expanding power and expanding exports and something, doesn't have a very specific long-term strategy? Well, first of all, I think it really is hard to have a long-term strategy in the Middle East and for the Middle East. Uh, be the United States, Russia, you know, the Europeans, or, or have, when, I, when I travel to the region, the question I have for the regional players is who would have a strategy? You know, the, the question is probably Iranians have a strategy. So I wouldn't really be critical of any power to not have strategy in the Middle East, given the turbulence of events there. Secondly, I mean, that might be true that, you know, Putin is perfect and taking advantage of certain uh, things. But when he sees certain players, including the United States, you know, stomp or do something that is not well received in the region, he certainly wants to, uh, you know, pick up these low hanging fruits as long as it, you know, serves the immediate goals. And I think what would happen in Syria over the course of these was was very much uh, this thing. I think this ultimate kind of question whether Russia has a strategy uh, pertains to that the criticism for the West, the United States or Europeans, for them not to have a strategy. And, you know, when people in the region see that Russia is doing something that is deemed successful, mm-hmm. they believe, well, maybe Russia has some strategy, unlike the West. This may not necessarily be the case. Okay. To stay with strategy, just to move to a different topic, we're seeing playing out the Mueller investigation in the US into alleged collusion mm-hmm. with Russian operatives in an attempt to influence the election, whether people get convicted on that and whether Donald Trump stays in office is one question. I'm not going to address that. But there is no question that for sure, Russian operatives and the Kremlin and Putin perhaps were interested in the outcome and did attempt to influence it, whether they were doing that in concert with the Trump campaign is another question. Why do you think? Well, I think on this whole matter, Russia and the US are, and that clearly, in my view, is is at the bottom line of the US-Russia confrontation today. The ultimate kind of problem, in my view, is that Russia and the US are in the position of, how do you say, Zaxwang in a situation in chess, mm-hmm. you know, where the player is is kind of put at a disadvantage whenever, whatever move they make, they lose. Uh, so we, we can see this with, uh, you know, this Putin-Trump uh, summits. So whenever, you know, they meet, there are some problems because of the lack of transparency or what they discuss and things like this. And that, you know, all Russia ends up with more sanctions, which actually drives the situation 
transition, you know, to new lows. But just go to, for example, the Internet Research Agency in, I think, St. Petersburg, an arm of Russian military intelligence, having a very large operation, and it would appear tens or perhaps hundreds of thousands of Facebook and Twitter accounts attempting to push particular narratives and also attempting to drown out particular narratives when a, a hashtag that's unfavorable to them becomes po- became popular. They had a tactic of using that hashtag in hundreds of thousands of nonsense tweets, for example. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Why are they doing that? I'm not debating, you know, whether whether it happened or it didn't. I think it pretty much did, as you, as you listed. Uh, I think the issue, and this is pretty much, uh, you know, for, first of all, let me say that as, as much as many people in the U.S. believe there was Russian interference, half of Russians don't believe there was such interference. Mm-hmm. They believe it's Russia is just a club, you know, with which Democrats are hitting Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, other half, the other half of the Russians feel that even if there was interference, it's no problem because, you know, the U.S. has been interfering into Russian and other countries' affairs for years. I think what is not being asked in this very important matter is, is exactly what you're asking. Why would Russia do that? My theory is that, you know, Russia is not, you know, equal to the United States on all of the domains except for nuclear. It's worth noting that the GDP of the state of New York is significantly larger than the GDP of the whole of Russia. The, the very much the one kind of layer of deterrence and the only layer of deterrence Russia had until this kind of interference was the nuclear area. Mm-hmm. Now, with the cyber capabilities, we presume, you know, as, as, as many in the U.S. do, that it was the case, that Russia is trying, was trying to show that, you know, there here's one more domain where Russia can challenge the United States, which is in cyber. And that is kind of A, uh, to create this kind of new layer of deterrence, and B, to try to push the perception of Russia as an important if not equal player to the United States in inter, inter, international affairs. So whenever, as Moscow believes, U.S. will be willing to go, you know, after Putin or interfere into Russian domestics, here's the powerful tool Russia can use to deter U.S. from doing this. This is pretty much my, my, my reading of this. Is that a real deterrent? Is promoting one side in an election, in an election a deterrent to anything? Well, this was rather, this was rather a, you know, a, a tool. The, the, the bigger question was, I think, not so much with the Trump campaign as to how the Russians uh, got into these, all these files into other U.S. The, the government hacking. agencies. Right. Not, not so much the political campaign. I mean, political campaign, uh, I think, I'm certainly not privy to to these conversations in the Kremlin political campaign was, you know, one episode that probably didn't turn out, that turned out, you know, to give more than Russians would initially hope for. They bit off more than they can chew. And it's not just the Trump election uh, that they would appear to have intervened in favor of. There's very strong evidence that Kremlin resources, mostly through Russian military intelligence, were deployed online to support the Leave side in the Brexit campaign, to support Scottish independence, in Spain to support Catalan independence, and in France to support the election effort of the fascist or perhaps post-fascist candidate Marine Le Pen, and now of the Yellow Vest movements. And even if the online support for those is perhaps a little bit unclear or not entirely, if that blame can't always be definitively left at their door, there are media resources like Sputnik Radio, Radio Free Europe and Russia Today, which are all very strongly supporting those particular causes. It seems to me that the common thread between those is very difficult to find 
unless you presume that all they want to do is support chaos. Because, for example, Scottish mm-hmm. independence and Catalan independence are very much liberal left-wing causes in those countries. The Le Pen mm-hmm. National Front candidature and the Yellow Vest movements in France are very much on the right, veering towards the extreme right. So there is no coherent political ideology there. It seems like they're just trying to cause chaos. Do you think that's possibly true? Well, I think there are two things here. One is Russia is, with the with these media resources that you mentioned, Russia is trying to challenge what it sees, the quote-unquote discourse power of the West, you know, in the conversations and Moscow, I also I frequently hear that, you know, the West has been uh, controlling the, the power over the f- formulation of a narrative. Mm-hmm. And now these kind of, quote unquote, alternative media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to, you know, challenge these narratives and, and, and give people the other side of the story. The second part, and that, of course, is kind of this uh, huge domain of information. Hold on, warfare. Max. Are you, are you sure that's true? Sure. As you put it, they're trying to give people the other side of the story. But the, the story as seen by, for example, Catalan independent supporters are Scottish, the Scottish National Party in favour of Scottish independence, they are diametrically opposed to sure. the type of political interests that that Russian media, Russian propaganda media, you could call it, are promoting in France and perhaps in Scandinavia. There's no coherent political thread to oh, that's it. Exactly, that's exactly what you're saying. There is no cookie the cutter. Only coherent, the only coherent explanation of it is that they are promoting the most disruptive elements. Well, sure. I mean, it doesn't have to be coherent to work for the sake of the political interest, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think it's incoherent, it's, I mean, it's fine as long as it brings the, whatever fruits the film, you know, they, they, sh- they should be bringing. Mm-hmm. The second element here that I was going to mention is I think the uh, Russians see that they're doing what, uh, you know, this kind of trying to get a revenge on the loss in the Cold War by doing what uh, they believe the West has been doing uh, during the Cold War, you know, working with the elements of popular displease. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the things that you mentioned were not, you know, born by Russia, right? The social displease or political displease with elites, but they're being exploited by, you know, these online resources Mm-hmm. As as a way to you know to influence uh, these city, these countries from within, as these as the Western countries have been doing for you know from former Soviet bloc. It's just that- pause on that, Max. You say a way to influence the countries. Sure. Are, do they really care what political interests they are promoting? It's a good question. I think not necessarily, and it has been a big uh, you know issue on the debate in Russia itself. You know, when when some people were suggesting you know Russia does not have ideology today as it had during you know the Cold War. And that's a good thing because, you know, it pretty much makes you pragmatic or cynic, whatever you want, in, in promoting whoever you want, be it the uh, alt-right or, uh, you know, far left, whoever you think. Mm-hmm. Others say it's a problem because, you know, if Russia does not have a clear kind of ideology, it may be promoting some people or groups of people that, you know, are displeased with uh, their governments as much as they may be displeased with uh, Russian moves. So kind of in the in in long run, it may be, you know to the detriment of Russian interests. So there is a debate in, in, in Russia itself. I recall seeing one particular sign several times at Trump rallies. It was printed on T-shirts as well. And the slogan was, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat, which seems to be 
embracing Russian interference in US elections. Do you think that's whether they are pleased to see that or not? Do you think that anybody in Russia has common political cause with that type of Republican sentiment in the US? Well, I think it goes to show that Russia is now, you know, no longer foreign policy issue for the US, but more a domestic issue, mm-hmm. which makes, you know, the cause for improvement of relations with Russia even more difficult. And, you know, as a Russian, as someone who works on U.S.-Russia relations, I find it very problematic that that Russia kind of, you know, either inserted itself or made to, to be inserted in this in this kind of very difficult discourse in the U.S. now. Uh, I feel that, you know, this this kind of image of, of Putin and, and why, you know, you also see a lot of Putin supporters at Trump's rallies has to do with this kind of image of, of leadership, you know, of Putin constructed for himself as a strong iron fist ruler. And that kind of, you know, bounces back from a perceived weakness of Western elites that Russians also trying to capitalize upon. Mm-hmm. And do you think that this is, I mean, a specialist in international affairs, one thing that's notable that any politician or political leader in one country does almost always is try very hard not to intervene on one side or the other in the politics of another country, because they're very aware that if they take sides, the side that they don't back is likely to end up in power and have a grudge against them sooner or later. Is that a, a is that a wise move for Putin to be so obviously favoring one side in the U.S.? Well, I think actually, you know, quite the contrary. Over the time, over the course of, of the history and even recent history, we've seen a lot of foreign interference, you know, on, uh, and uh, if neighboring countries or other rivaling countries perceive some weakness that they can exploit, they do that. So I think here Putin is does think that he isn't doing anything worse than, you know, West or U.S. was doing in this respect. But the problem here, I think that the, the general trend to this kind of interference I personally see is growing. Even you see within the European Union uh, we now have, you know, Italian government openly speaking in, in favor of uh, you know, Yellow Vest in France and Matteo Salvini calling for, you know, Macron to step down. Things like this you would never imagine even a few years ago in Europe mm-hmm. now are kind of gaining momentum. These are quite anti-establishment parties that have come to power in sure. Italy. Uh, they're not the traditional social democrat or Christian democrat parties and they seem to be not intent on playing by the rules, as you mentioned, interfering in and supporting opposition movements in their neighbour sure. countries. One last thing I want to ask you about, Putin. There is something called the dictator trap. Dictators don't ever tend to retire gracefully, and that might be because they don't want to give up power. But another reason is perhaps they're not able to give up power because once they're no longer the dictator, they're at a very serious risk of at best ending up in prison or at worst ending up in front of a firing squad. Putin is getting on. He's He's been president effectively with a short break for nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. Two questions then. A, does he want to retire? And B, if he did, could he? Uh, these are excellent questions. Well, I think there was a moment, you know, when he was still prime minister where there were different scenarios discussed and he was looking for the so-called successor. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, when he saw some of the moves that then President Medvedev did, mm-hmm. uh, either with a reset policy with the US or with the, uh, you know, how Medvedev handled the Arab Spring and Libyan crisis that we started I should just about. give the background for the listeners from 2000 to 2008 Putin was president at that time there were term limits in the Russian constitution so he stepped down as president and it would seem like 
pretty much installed uh, Medvedev, another person from his party, as president for four years. During that period, Putin was prime minister and Medvedev was perhaps persuaded not to seek a second term and the constitution was changed to allow Putin to be president from 2012 onwards and there doesn't seem to be any end to that in sight. Right. I mean, there were were certainly some, you know, the the factors that I mentioned, but also, you know, there were these massive protests in Moscow in December of 2011, Mm -hmm. you know, that Putin thought the U.S. openly supported with uh, then State State Secretary Clinton uh, making, you know, statements endorsing these protests. And then I think was uh, one of these kind of moments where he thought, you know, there there can be no one better in Russia, you know, navigating the country. You know, these rough waters are of international politics. Uh, Russia will, will drown if, you know, it's not under my own guidance. Do you think he has a Napoleon complex? I mean, I, I, he might have. <laughs> you know, he, he has an interesting personal background, which we all know, of course. Uh, you never know, you know, <laughs> whatever this uh, people may have, uh, what kind of complexes. Well, in, in a, I think, uh, you know, now is the time he's 66. What's the average life expectancy for a male in Russia? Oh, ask me another. It's, it's I think it's I below think it's 60, 60-something. It's, it's lower than that, definitely, because this was one of the issues, contradictions in uh, latest kind of pension reform. Yes, the, the pension was set at, at a higher than the average life expectancy, I think. Right. So he's uh, higher than the average life expectancy, but I mean, uh, he definitely enjoys a better health care than <laughs> the rest of the people and lives actually a healthier lifestyle. He, he's he's pretty good, well fit. But, uh, you know, he's now in his technically last term, right? Mm-hmm. He was re-elected to president uh, in, in 20, uh, last year, actually, in 2018. So yes. he he will he will stay technically he, until 2024 i think yeah for six more years and this will be a very important uh, turning point for him either to you know further transform the political system to or to become father of the nation uh, or whatever or find a successor uh so and i think this will depend on a lot of uh, factors and relationship with the united states will be one of them uh, finally max do you feel free in moscow to write and speak as you feel Sure. Yes, actually, I do. Uh, I, I have uh, several affiliations. And uh, so far, knock on the book, I have not had any <laughs> problem doing this. That's good to hear. Maxim Suchov, a PhD political analyst and Russia editor of Al Monitor. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Max at msuchkov underscore ALM. And get in touch with us if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. And remember that we now have a Patreon account. Thanks to the people who've signed up as patrons so far. I really appreciate that. More patrons means that we can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you'd like to join those patrons and support the show with a buck or two, you will find all the details on the website. And you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Nick Albertson. Thank you for listening. (music) 